The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, May 30th, 2021, on the basis of Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. These eight verses in Isaiah chapter 6 are, to me, some of the Holy Spirit's finest work. The, the finest pieces of Scripture that the Holy Spirit ever inspired. They're this unique nexus between powerful imagery and deep theology, between glories witnessed and doctrines learned. Each word reveals so much to us about our God, and each reaction reveals so much to us about ourselves. I mean, we could sp- seriously spend an entire month of Sundays studying this one text, these eight verses, and not bleed it dry. And so as we begin to wade neck deep into all that glorious noise, it would be the easiest thing in the world for us to just hop right over that opening line, those opening words, in the year that King Uzziah died. For years those words did nothing for me except prick up my ears to the fact that the prophet Isaiah was about to see something awesome. But really, those words are the springboard for this entire text. King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years meaning that for many people in Judah, he was the only king that they had ever known. And on a long list of kings that the Bible tells us did evil in the eyes of the Lord, the Bible also tells us that Uzziah sought the Lord. And as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, the Lord gave Uzziah success. He was able to build up the defenses of Jerusalem. He was able to make the armies of Judah a force to be reckoned with. Agriculture, infrastructure, organization all flourished under his leadership. And, and of course, the foundation for all this leadership was King Uzziah's love for God, which gave him the reputation that he had. But between godly people and their godly foundations, pride has a way of growing. And so after 42 years of faithful service, King Uzziah arrogantly stormed into the temple to assume for himself, to demand that he be allowed to take on the duties that God had reserved for the priest, to cross that holy boundary that the priests of God only ever crossed by the gracious permission of their holy God. And just like that, God struck him with skin-rotting leprosy. He spent the last 10 years of his reign in a different house, kept away from his throne, barred from the house of God for the rest of his life, and when he died... All the people had to say was, he had leprosy. A bad ending will always spoil a good legacy. In recent years, it's become no secret that many of the influential figures in our lives are not nearly as saintly as they would have us believe they are by by any standard. Reputations get soiled by accusations and confessions. Entire legacies are ruined by singular moral failings. And sometimes, unfortunately, maybe more often than we like to realize, those people bear the name Christian. And maybe they've made their name by spreading the gospel or defending the faith. And when it's discovered that those Christian figures, you know, that their record of sins occasionally fell well outside the bell curve, I get hit with all sorts of feelings. I feel sadness that a Christian brother or sister has fallen into the hands of a world that does not 
and will not forgive. I feel anger that because of their actions, unbelievers now feel that they have permission to tether that unchristlike behavior to my identity in Christ. And I feel shame because the individual parts of the body of Christ are not as holy as they ought to be. And I also look inward because I know myself better than anyone else. And you know yourselves better than anyone else. And when we really honestly evaluate ourselves in the light of God's word, we are not going to find people who are deserving of God's grace. So whether it's our own sinfulness or the sinfulness of other Christians in our lives, we're not, we, we might not feel any holier than people who live as if there were no God. And there's a reason for that. Because we understand that in the light of God's holiness, even the best of us looks filthy. But we'll find out today from this text in Isaiah how that same holiness makes us clean. King Uzziah's death would have left the nation a bit morally conflicted. They would have been suffering with a little bit of collective guilt, spiritual uncertainty. And amid all that spiritual uncertainty, the prophet Isaiah found himself in the temple one night. And there he saw the Lord. That's not a line that we can just overlook there. He saw the Lord. You know, it's two words in the Hebrew, and yet it just, it's such an amazing thing to consider. And this is one verse where I will, where I will give the King James Version credit, and I don't do that often, but I will give it here because it includes one word that most English translations don't bring over because it's a bit awkward in the Hebrew. The King James says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And I need that also in there. Because what that conveys to us is that in the very year that Isaiah saw a godly king ruined by pride, in the very same year that Isaiah watched as a once great leader disintegrated without dignity, Isaiah saw another king. A king who sat eternal and immovable on the throne of heaven while earthly kings rose and fell. A king whose robe filled the temple and whose glory filled the earth. And in that moment, any memory of King Uzziah, King Uzziah the leader, King Uzziah the builder, and yes, even King Uzziah the leper, was struck from Isaiah's mind. Because everything in this heavenly vista was absolutely overwhelming. And where sight fails to comprehend what it's seeing, the angels above the throne declare it in those immortal words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In its purest sense, the word holy describes God and only God. In other words, he is not God because he is holy, but he's holy because he's God. Holiness is the quality and measure by which God is set apart from everything and everyone else in creation. That's what the word holy means. It means set apart. And so we might say that God is in a class by himself in every category. For instance, he's not strong. He's almighty. He's not smart. He's all-knowing. God, God doesn't do a thing because it's good, but rather it's good because God does it. He is subject to none, master of all, and as creator of the universe, he is at the top of the existential food chain. That is holiness. It's, it's why the angels, who are radiant with their own holiness, still have to cover their gaze with their wings. 
It's why at the sound of their proclamation, the, the most snug footings and fittings of the temple tremble and quake as every atom of creation strains to bow down to the creator. And from the glorious floor to the boundless ceiling, all of this serves to communicate exactly one thing, and that is that our God is entirely unlike us in every way. God's robe still fills the temple. God's glory still fills the earth. But that temple today is made of flesh and blood, not brick and mortar. It's made up of believers like you and me who have been called to be vessels of God's glory, who have been called to be set apart from the sinful world that we nonetheless live in. Because Christ makes us holy, we are therefore called to be holy. But we live in an age where very little is sacred anymore and where the pretense of sanctity is rapidly fading from the public conscience. And so in that environment, in an environment like that, the pursuit of holiness has become such a foreign concept to many Christians, maybe even some of you. It's become such a foreign concept that maybe the very mention of it just makes you cringe a little bit. You wince and shrink back a little bit. Having this, this, this deflated idea of the gospel, as if the substance of the gospel is that God just hands grace to sinners like a bus ticket and sets us loose to, to mull around doing whatever we want with whoever we want while we wait for our ride to heaven to show up. And all that while, we might as well blend in with the sinful world. Are we okay with that? Are we content to wallow in the sins that killed our Savior after he died for us? Because if we are, then the best case scenario is that no one finds out you're a Christian. But the more likely outcome is that they know you're a Christian and they get the impression from you that the Christians are just as godless as they are. God's glory is not a secret for us to conceal in unholy living. And we cannot be God's glory in a sin-darkened world while we actively mimic darkness. That's inconceivable. And yet it's exactly what our minds conceive of when we live with a dangerously inadequate understanding of God's character that makes a joke out of holiness and therefore makes a joke out of sin. I mean, Adam and Eve ate forbidden fruit because they wanted to be like God. And when that promise turned out to be a lot more difficult than the serpent made it sound, every generation since has been struggling to make God more like us. A God who winks at sin. A God who, who laughs with us and throws his arm around us when we screw up. Who, who will tussle our hair and call us little rascals whenever we, as we go around heaping disgrace on the holy name that he's given us. But the fact is, a God who laughs at sin, a God who is like us, is not God. Because God is entirely, fundamentally unlike us, even the best of us. And so as Isaiah stood before the throne, that much was obvious. Because the sight he was seeing was awesome. It was beautiful. We can pull that right out of the text. But the realization that came with it was awful. Because before the throne of God and underneath the beating wings of the seraphim, Isaiah found himself the foreigner. Because he bore no resemblance to the angels above the throne 
And he wouldn't dare compare himself to the Holy One on the throne. And so now Isaiah's closest point of comparison is the people among among which he lives. People like us. A people of unclean lips, which makes him, by association, a man of unclean lips. The Holy Prophet Isaiah, the mouthpiece of the Most High, was in the end still a sin-riddled, unholy man before a holy God. And to even pretend otherwise would be like lighting himself on fire to try and match the sun. The best he could do and the brightest he could burn just wouldn't measure up. And that's what real holiness does. It takes everything that we consider good about ourselves and makes it look absolutely filthy. So that coming face to face with God is no longer something that fills us with joy, but that places us alongside Isaiah, crying, woe is me. Woe is me. And all this time, the God on the throne has not spoken a single word. He didn't have to. Isaiah came to these conclusions by himself, and so should we when we consider the holiness of God. Because we will all stand alone before that throne. And in that moment, the wicked will finally understand the importance of holiness, while the righteous nonetheless count their own holiness as nothing. And when you stand before that throne, the very last thing that will cross anybody's mind is the uncleanness of somebody else. And so what you may be wrestling with then is where the distinction between the wicked and the righteous is. Where that comes from, where the difference lies. Because the very best of believers will never be able to find a society that has removed itself far away enough from sin to satisfy a holy God. And that same believer, there's there's no corner of the globe, no fortress of solitude that that believer can run to where his sinful nature won't follow him. But the same searing holiness that humbled King Uzziah, that same unsearchable holiness that drove Isaiah to the brink of despair, that very same holiness that pits a holy God against sinful people is the same holiness that God uses to make sinners holy. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Sin cannot be saved, but sinners can. Unholiness cannot be reconciled with our God's holiness, but unholy people can be. And so if the terror of holiness springs out of our sinfulness, then the only solution and the obvious solution is that the sin and the sinner must be separated or set apart from each other. And that's a feat that none of us can pull off. And that's why Christians often feel and look unclean in a sinful world. That's why they may often look the same as sinful people because no man, woman, or child can do a single thing to remove that stain of sin from us, to heal a reputation that we ourselves have soiled. But a God who is totally unlike us, a holy God. That's exactly what he does. The holiness of God burns away all our sin, leaving nothing but a saint behind. And what's important to remember here, what's really important to remember here, is that this is not a conversion experience. Isaiah is already five chapters deep into prophecy at this point. 
He is a, he is a believer, a man of God through and through. And the reason that that's important to know is because it shows us that this grace shown to Isaiah in this moment is not just an arbitrary decision made in the moment by a fickle God who is sometimes forgiving, sometimes wrathful. No, the angel brought holiness to Isaiah from the altar, from the place of sacrifice that had been standing for centuries as a testament to God's willingness to forgive his people. 200 years later, that temple and the altar along with it would be destroyed. But in the same way, the cross of Christ has long since been taken down from Calvary. And yet that sacrifice made once for all has imparted holiness and atonement and grace to every humbled sinner and every disgraced believer, to Abraham, to Uzziah, to Isaiah, to Peter, to Evan Aerosmith, every disgraced believer throughout history, as certain and as true as if God himself had pressed that coal to our own lips. And so now on your worst day, you can wash in the ever-flowing waters of your baptism. Now, in bread and wine, when you hear those words, the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you, you can hear also the angel saying, See, these have touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That's God's promise to us. And because he is holy, that promise never expires. In this life, among a people of unclean lips, you are unfortunately bound to come across Christians with unclean lips. Among a people of unclean hands, the sad truth is that you may find your hands dirty at the end of every day, and that will never be a part of God's will for your life. But what makes our God one of a kind is that even when he uses flawed instruments and imperfect tools, the final product is always a masterpiece. And we are a part of that masterpiece. Because our ultimate identity as God's people is not found in the unholy people that we are, but in the holy God that he is. That's why when, when the Holy One on the throne finally opens his mouth to speak and infers with the, with the persons of the Trinity decide, to decide which of the world's many sinners they can use for their work, Isaiah can stand and confidently say, Here am I. Send me. Like I said, there's so much more to say about this text than we have time for this morning. But if you walk away with just one lesson, if you take one thing away from this sermon, let it be this. When our God is so much more holy than we can imagine, we are far more sinful and far more in danger than we can imagine. And I want that to be the lesson you take away because I figure it's enough of a bummer that it'll keep you coming back for lesson two. That that very same holiness that terrifies us, that drives us to despair, that drives us to despair of our own abilities is the same holiness that makes us holy. The Christian influences in your life will sooner or later prove themselves to be woefully human. You'll prove that to yourselves time and time again before you stand before the throne of God. But before that throne, the altar still stands, making saints out of sinners. Amen. <laughs>